Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Episode 33 is a continuation of episode 32. To get in line with the conversation as well as align with the issues that we are discussing in these episodes i kindly request you to listen to the episode 32 first and then move to the episode 33 thank you very much interesting i think especially the part that you mentioned about uh, the white propaganda of course to highlight the atrocities uh, that were conducted uh, to certain community i think i mean these are some of the good parts of the agencies i would say because the world then became aware about it uh, and you know just to kind of uh, go ahead little bit and take a step into the covert operations so what are some of the notable covert operations or intelligence missions conducted by these agencies that have had a significant impact on india's national security especially maybe in the recent times uh well in the recent times it's it it is going to be significantly difficult for me to talk about it or to 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 you know to say this with clarity um yeah, but yeah. yeah i mean that that challenge is always there since we're dealing with uh, covert matters but yes, i think yes. that um you know continue I, I mean i'll just continue with where you uh, left off the, yes. it has always been the rndw's operations to make sure that the diaspora is uh, is very aware of what india is doing and india's national security is and this is also because we haven't had a co- coherent strategy in the sense that national security so we don't have a national security strategy and it keeps oscillating with every regime change right so you had uh, the nehruvian regime which which thought in a certain manner which which spoke of uh, uh, global peace and india being this idealist power which could lead the world and so on and then you had uh, shrimati indira gandhi who had her own uh, uh, approach to national security so similarly over the years you had multiple prime ministers bringing their own strategies so you never had a co- coherent national security strategy which is one reason one thing that actually affects the intelligence agencies operations but as and when they have got sufficient uh, support from the political leadership right they have been able to conduct operations more freely and to name some of them i can i can uh, of course there was an initial failure but then uh, gradually they caught up with it we can talk about pakistan's nuclear program itself right um yes. how uh, so so india has had significant successes in terms of uh, technological uh, te- technical interception uh, interception of uh, telephone conversations between uh, the pakistani leadership and some of its agents in europe and also coming down to um, the 1990 and kargil war as well after kargil war we, uh, india was able to successfully intercept the conversation between musharraf and his deputy back in pakistan and show it to the world uh, that um, pakistan was indeed responsible for the kargil crisis so you see uh, the the point is that yes. india has always uh, indian intelligence agencies especially the rndw right they have had 
this penchant for technical intelligence they're not they're not too technical oriented in the sense that i'm not saying that their most of their missions are based on technical intelligence but they are they are significantly focused on technical intelligence because they believe that technical intelligence brings with it a certain sense of reliability yes. right especially in in okay i'll give you the example of the 1990 and kargil war itself now what happened during the war or prior to the war is that before the war started before the crisis actually started kashmir was a zone of counter insurgency you had a lot yes. of agencies operating in kashmir in counter insurgency roles including the rnaw and the ib now which were these agencies you had the jammu and kashmir uh, police intelligence you had the bsf's intelligence wing which is known as the g branch right and then you had the rnaw yes. you had the ib you had all these agencies operating now what happens in such a situation is that you have different bureaucracies competing with each other and they are trying to procure as much intelligence as possible through human sources Yes. because they are only concerned about the upcoming operation that they have to conduct so in such a context what happens is that there is there is a lot of room for misinformation to happen lot of room for uh, human intelligence agents to be turned and you know them feeding uh, wrong information and so on so in order to uh, avoid such kind of uh, scenarios right the rnaw then took a decision that we are going to rely mostly on technical inter- intelligence because it is quite hard to um, to to so sort of uh, meddle with um, uh, meddle and fudge the technical intelligence data so things like this have made made the agency extremely reliant on technical intelligence but when you when you are talking about rnaw operations overseas and so on they are still purely human intelligence oriented and they've had some significant successes there as well but when you compare the neighborhood with the with the rnaw's operations in um the extended neighborhood or say in the western capitals and so on there are differences in how they operate and if yes. you if you want i mean just just to give a basic example not an example but to just make a basic point here there is a lot of information that can be brought over a bottle of alcohol in the india's in india's neighborhood but i don't think that will work yes. in 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 uh, you know in the western capitals so such yeah. kind of differences do exist so yes but to just but to point out the successful covert operations there are numerous but i think that uh, most of them are known to people the 1971 war the 1975 um, uh, you know sikkim operation where we made sikkim the 22nd state of indian union and then we uh, the operation in maldives during the late 1980s uh, to pro- to protect the regime there right and um, even even recently there have been speculations that india was involved in sri lanka during the elections and so on so there have been successes uh but there have also been notable when when you talk about failures since we spoke about failures some time back right it's failures are not just uh providing wrong assessments and so on sometimes even we'll have to look at other other kinds of failures which is to which is even counter intelligence failures right we've had a lot of um, rnaw officers or you know people from within the national security establishment turn out to be agents of uh, foreign states now that is uh, something okay. that yes 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 so yeah. i i think i mean uh, nehru when he came when he was the prime minister between 1947 and 1964 right he never he he never really had this uh, how do you say enthusiasm for intelligence it was it it only gradually grew on him and one of the reasons it started to grow on him was in was that in the year 1956 the ib caught hold of a pakistani spy in india right okay. so that is when nehru realized that yes this is indeed a serious problem and we need to take it seriously and from there on his education with regards to uh, intelligence started to improve with every such catastrophe that they encountered 
but coming but later on we have had very significant failures in that sense the one of the most important incidents that most people know of is that of uh, the 2004 rabindra singh uh, incident but exactly. from what i yeah but from what i gather rabindra singh was not he was not that big a fish if i can, if i may just simply use yeah. that uh, phrase but you have had far more dangerous uh, incidents for example we talk of rn cow but rn cow's uh, i think it, he was his personal secretary, uh, secretary if i'm not wrong mr sikandar he was um, he was also he was an agent of a foreign intelligence agency so I, we don't okay. know what kind of information was carried on uh, carried away to uh, at that point in time and then you've had mr unikrishnan who most people know um, who uh, thanks to whom the sri lankans tended to have an edge over all negotiations that happened with india during between 1985 and 1987 right so we've had lots of uh, and there's also the case of kumar narayan and so on yes. so even today recently we we've had this case of um, the uh, drdo scientist if i'm not wrong uh, yes, so yes yes kurulkar's case yeah yes yes exactly, yes yeah. so yes so uh, so we have these kind of cases which which are also some things that we don't discuss too seriously in india but i think that they have uh, a very significant impact on national security you're absolutely right i agree with you on this thing uh, the infiltration is very high in india mm-hmm. uh, especially i i'd like to give an example on this uh, it's like i work in the space industry primarily on the military satellites uh, and believe me on my podcast i had an opportunity to even bring uh, people from the us air force think tank grand corporation who have actually worked on field uh, in you know afghanistan uh, iraq as well but even as an indian as an indian citizen uh, someone who is born and brought up in india spent almost 25 years of my life in india it is still tough for me to bring someone from isro on the podcast uh, the reason yeah the reason i'll tell you it is uh, because i think uh, i mean you cannot really meet uh, the people from isro very easily uh, if you are based in india if you are possibly outside because i whenever i'm here in paris and all uh, last year also there was international aeronautical congress and yeah we were we were meeting and greeting the isro people like you know uh, like as if you know we are like friends meeting in the evening for dinner but if you're in india it's it's going to be very tough to meet them or even you know possibly kind of have even a short meeting with them and the reason i i came to the conclusion from my uh, analysis and research because i have been working on the espionage cases in the space industry specifically is because india has had a lot of infiltration for its critical technology programs since you know the early times uh, and as you mentioned like recently also there was a case of uh, kurulskar's case from drdo pune uh, and i think uh, we can definitely actually i would say and have a different episode on uh, how the infiltration in the several industries have been taking place in india uh, but yeah uh, i believe like the agencies have been doing uh, some good work and that's the reason we haven't seen such kind of attacks but i still believe uh, an infiltration on the information level is still existing in india a lot at the moment absolutely absolutely and i and i f- I'm fully agree with you uh, with regard to your complaints that many of the isro people are uh... unwilling to come on your your podcast i think that secrecy is not the solution to these kind of problems i uh, i think that better training better education in terms of information security is the solution simply turning yes. uh, turning your back to all kinds of interactions with the public or with scholars is not the, it's not the is not the solution 
because we mm. see that uh, there's a whole deal of interaction happening in the western world between academics between scholars between the media between the public and uh, uh, stakeholders within the national security establishment and it does seem to me that there has been a positive impact as a consequence of that there is better exchange of ideas there's better exchange of knowledge yes. so if if by not interacting with the public if you if you had put a complete stop to all sorts of infiltration then that's all right but that doesn't seem to be the case right so somewhere mm -hmm. there's a there is a flaw in this kind of thinking that uh, secrecy keeps keeps one safe no that's uh, yes. it, it's it's only a recipe for disaster i believe exactly uh, i mean like the more you keep a hold tight on something the more uh, there is a possibility that it might explode True, so i think th this is the kind of you know analogy generally i give to the people so you know you have to be open you have to be transparent uh, mm -hmm. Even in France, that was the case previously, uh, before 2015. Uh, but now things are open. I see, like, the French intelligence agency, there's a biotech conference that happens every year in Paris. In Maimon, this is a general technology conference. They actually put up a desk over there to interact with the students, to let them know what are the desk jobs. Of course, not for the field recruiting, but for, you know, the desk jobs. Uh, because mm -hmm. I think this is what we need in India as well, where the agencies are more open. Especially the student audience should know, because right now i believe the students really don't know what they they can be they would be able to contribute to such agencies at the moment exactly i, I mean we it, don't uh, even have the a, a website actually yeah, <laughs> at the moment true true i mean uh, so sorry to have interrupted you but the point that i was trying yeah. to make is that even if you keep the raw aside right uh, that's fine okay we we are still not such a mature democracy to say that um, we can think in terms of opera in operational matters of intelligence yes. and so on at least as you're mentioning uh, you know the desk job and so on I think that the JSC could have done a good job there in terms of building bridges between uh, academics and you know think tankers and so on, getting their opinions yes. and so on. But today, what we have is that we have something known as the National Security Advisory Board and uh, board, which is supposed to be getting yes. experts from elsewhere. But even there, I think that it is predominantly dominated by people from within the system, right? So, yes. I, so that is why we need an organization where there can be an exchange. Uh, of knowledge at least at least very briefly so that when these people when yes. these representatives of academia or think tank community come back to their original spaces they have an yes. idea of what to expect from the system so which is, now because this is missing right most people within the academia who tend to hold uh, command respect are ones who are practitioners turned academics again right because they yes, seem yes. to they they seem to carry this yes. aura that we know something that you people don't and that is never yes. healthy, uh, you know, for a democracy because that's only going to fuel further conflict and not, uh, uh, you know, build bridges between the practitioner community and the intellectual community. Absolutely, yes, I definitely, uh, highly agree on this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, just to kind of uh, uh, proceed with this, the same topic, I would say. I mean, you brought up espionage. So, how do raw and IP handle espionage, uh, counterterrorism, and uh, intelligence gathering in foreign countries uh, also like i would like to literally highlight this uh, like at your convenience uh, i know that you know uh, there are always some restrictions if you'd like to speak about or not uh, but yeah please feel free to highlight uh, the latest example of india and canada at your convenience all right uh, i think yeah. i touched upon a little bit in terms of how the two agencies conduct their operations in terms of technical yeah, intelligence yeah. and so yes, on that yes. distinction but i'll uh, look i'll tell you what all right uh, as far as human intelligence goes in in, in yes. gathering foreign intelligence from foreign countries like i was saying right from the start nehru did not want it 
okay so the first chief of indian intelligence his name was uh, tg sanjeevi without yes. without nehru knowing he had posted uh, three intelligence officers i think to france germany and pakistan now for the life of me i don't know i don't understand why germany and france but then yes he had posted them there for whatever reasons he had for whatever strategies he had so they were posted um, under some form of diplomatic cover and that yes. has sort of extended ever since you know so we have uh, we don't have this concept of something known as um, non official covers right so yes. there are official covers and there are non official covers now official covers means that the intelligence officers are embedded within the diplomatic mission in 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 some rank or the other within the within the embassies or within the high commission now what that yes. does is it significantly curtails the freedom of operation for the intelligence officers and despite yes. numerous numerous uh, uh, suggestions that we need to do away with this uh, you know uh, obsession with official covers and have uh, some non official covers i don't yes. think that has changed and even uh, so since you said that you spoke about the india canada case right even the india canada case as well we see that canada sort of expels expelled uh, somebody who it called the station chief of rnw who was operating as a diplomat right yeah. so that is uh, that is how india uh, that is how india india's um, i mean darne w conducts his intelligence operations in foreign countries in the sense that most of its op uh, officers go on official covers but yes. in the neighborhood as far as uh, terrorist uh, cases of terrorism and counterinsurgency are concerned that's uh, that's a little bit different because you know uh, there there's little space for diplomatic covers and so on so the kind of infiltration that will have to happen the kind of operations that will need to be conducted are slightly uh, more different but sticking to yes. the india canada case for now look what happened there is that it was it was i mean we all know the kind of allegations that was made by that were made by uh, trudeau which was yes. simply not believable uh, in the sense that see, it is not believable in one sense and it could be possible in another sense why was it not believable one because there is no historical trajectory of india conducting operations as such second um, trudeau's uh, comments comments itself were not clearly stating that they have evidence to the extent that they could prove that india has conducted something like this third it's it's been about what three weeks now two to three weeks since the incident i haven't seen any um, counterintelligence personnel in canada being held to account for uh, for failure right that's yes. another thing that we need to take into consideration if at all it was a, if if it was an indian operation then the quest, then the relevant questions need to be asked of canadian counterintelligence which are not being asked at all yes so these are some of the reasons for me to say that yes it is it is it is impossible that india could have done something like this yes but tomorrow if there is some evidence which shows that yes india was indeed behind this right then what is there a, is is there is there a, a reason for us to then i mean how do we then take that kind of uh, evidence that comes up then yes. that will have to be in line with india's historical modus operandi that has happened in uh, the neighborhood that is to play divide within uh, to plant divides within the uh, within the targets and to yes. make a list of targets who are unlikely to do india's bidding and then and then yes. covertly try to get them bumped off by the by the opposing groups so that the rnw or any other organization indian intelligence organizations hands are clear of this yes right so but this has a second point right which is when does india when does the rnw or the ib or any of the neighboring uh, you know indian uh, uh, state intelligence agencies in, in in you know on the borders and so on when do they carry out these kind of operations 
they carry out these kind of operations when they have hit yes. a dead end that is you know they are, there is no other option now they are trying to make peace with this uh, get the separatist movement into the indian mainstream they are trying to build bridges it is not happening because of certain characters who need to be dealt with strictly I, right and there yes. is no, there is nothing we can do because the neighboring countries are also not acting against these uh, elements and in fact are giving them safe haven either voluntarily or because they are incapable of uh, you know denying them safe haven so in that instances what options are our intelligence agencies left with so it is in those instances that we see the indian intelligence carry out operations which that is why i call them there that these these are exceptions not the rule so if india has yes. indeed conducted such an operation in in canada it only speaks to the extent of escalation that has happened in the threat perception from the uh, khalistani movement that is coming out of canada yes and i do not for, and i and I, I would not believe that india has, would have taken unilateral action without uh, sufficiently trying to inform the canadians that this problem is there and they need their assistance and if yes. the canadians and the, the other western countries which are harboring uh, separatists in their on their soil have been have been turning a blind eye to india's national security concerns then i think that this whole normative debate about whether uh, you know uh, the, whether it is acceptable to conduct targeted killings or not and all that it is it is fine for academic discussions but i don't think policy makers would ever listen to us yes and uh, i mean just to add on what you mentioned uh, you're absolutely right i mean there has been no evidence uh, the other thing was uh, because i have always seen this you know kind of a lineup of narratives that lines up and one nato member state or one allied nations you know come up uh, with some allegations or possibly accusations you know the narrative starts you know inclining towards you know all the uh, i would say allied nations but this time something different happened uh like the foreign policy think tank like the major us think tanks mm. government think tanks i saw a dedicated i mean a huge reports uh, with an evidence of how uh, i mean they didn't didn't of course directly mention that uh, about the acquisition of uh, canada to india mm-hmm. uh, but they did mention that before you know naming anyone else uh, canada should look after its infiltration of chinese Uh, right business real estates and mm-hmm. i mean i so so much agree with this because i have seen one of the cases very closely in the space industry uh where one of the engineers were working for 20 years mm. inside the canada uh, inside canada and i think for canadian space agency he was working for quite a long time and uh, like god knows how much of the critical information that man has supplied and right. but you know for 20 years they were unable to trace him and this happened like last year actually this case was happened last year uh, but yeah they they gave us significant the us think tanks actually gave us significant information of how the canadian intelligence agency agency has been pushing to the government hmm. uh, to say that okay before looking after everything you really look, look at your home ground where chinese infiltration is a lot uh, starting from real estate investments to the local businesses to the startup investments as well mm-hmm. uh, like they're trying to create dominance in this ways um, but yeah uh but i believe and, and they certainly mention of course in that as well that you know the current uh, government has been ignoring this fact uh and they never actually took that report seriously as well of 1997 by canadian intelligence uh so mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah so i believe like this is this f- first time i have observed because generally i still remember when uh, uh i think there was a case of kalistan uh, where two of the indian agents were captured in germany back in 2019 or 20 i think right uh 
but uh, suddenly you know things i mean like i have always uh, seen that you know uh, in europe especially germany's inclination has always been towards you know uh, i would say pakistan when it comes to this kind of things uh, but yeah at that time as well i saw like the countries like france and all you know they had either a neutral stand or possibly they didn't uh, you know uh, stood up with the kind of the fa- fact that germany was uh, trying to say you know like favoring the extremist group basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i i believe that there has been some shift in the india's narrative because previously this used to be the thing that you know i mean like uh, okay we we have our narrative but uh, not really the superpowers are not really you know setting their own narrative for us uh, but this time in the canada's case i saw something different uh, where okay even the allied nations are not actually encouraging this fact from canada right uh, onkar but i look i have a very uh, slightly different uh, perspective on all of this because what you what you said uh, is is purely factual and uh, it is a reflection of yes, what has yes. been happening in the recent past but i yeah. i like to th- take a little historic and uh, you know strategic yeah. um, you know opinion on 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 all that has been happening between india and the west yes yes i i am uncomfortable with the fact that um, india is seen as something that is to be looked at within the framework of your western western policies towards china right historically yes, it yes. was it was um, uh, india pakistan being hyphenated now it is somehow india china being hyphenated i yes, yes what happens is as a consequence of looking the west looking at india in that sense right in this in as a prisoner of geography many a uh, serious problems about india and uh, india's thought processes escape the western thinkers Yes, right yes. and that and the, and and also the what what this also does is it creates certain it, it does not give them any incentive to understand india for what it is okay look at yes. look at exactly what is happening now Where, from the time this india canada spat happened since 18 september right what have the western media houses what have the western thinkers been doing they have deliberately been trying to look at this as something that is an act of the current regime in power in india right yes, there is yes. no factual basis whatsoever but because for the last 9 years this narrative has been fed constantly that somehow in india is becoming completely undemocratic under the uh, current regime and somehow all the problems that have started in india are are, are, are uh, you know due to this undemocratic tendencies under the current regime now i am not here to deny whether the deny the fact that under the current regime there is um, um, there is a certain streak of authoritarianism or anything but i am of the strong opinion and and it is factual that india yes. has never been truly democratic in the in the, in the sense that you know you can write it on paper and say this is the definition of democracy and india fits yes. that paradigm no that has never been the yes. case right there is a, yes. we we are we are still a young country we still have a lot of internal security issues we still have the threat of secessionism is alive in several packets in india yes. so that is something that people need to understand so that both both in india as well as the west right and once that understanding mm-hmm. happens then we will be able to distinguish between what is exactly a regime problem what is exactly a national problem right that is missing now and as far mm-hmm. as the west continues to look at india as a tool in its fight against china right then they have they, have, they can conveniently turn a blind eye to all of this to the yes. problems and not find a proper proper solutions imagine this right now the united states sees india as a bulwark against china so what does it do it's it probably asks canada to go slow to keep its mouth shut for some time or you know it does not criticize india uh, openly yes. right but imagine yeah. instead of doing that it had been actually um 
aware to india's national security needs yeah right then the, then the story would have been completely different completely different yes correct That's so true. that is something that we need to aim to do that is to help them un- understand that india's national security needs are india's national security needs irrespective of the regime in place regime and india's place, existence yeah. in the world is india's existence in the world irrespective of china's or pakistan's existence yes yes no i think you're right absolutely right i mean this has been playing out in the indo-pacific politics as well uh where you know i have always used this term boldly that uh, like india has been used as a navigator uh, by the united states uh, for the uh, indo-pacific politics right uh, but yeah th- there have been i mean things have been going on uh, i mean even the quad group we saw like australia under the pressure of china Uh, really ruptured the cooperation back uh, a decade ago mm-hmm. uh, but then again quad is back uh, and i was actually surprised you know how things are again i mean we are seeing these days india cooperating with the countries with which really it didn't had uh, such a good past mm-hmm. in the back and that to in sectors like space and defense especially uh, like the critical technology sectors mm-hmm. uh, but i hope this foreign policy actually works out as you said you know Uh, it shouldn't be just because currently there is an anti china narrative going on uh, for that india is used but it should be actually for a healthy security cooperation right as as yeah. you mentioned mm-hmm. yeah i agree with you on this fact and uh, just to mention uh, on the same line so are there any instances of cooperation or friction with uh, foreign intelligence agencies that you can share a uh, uh, little bit insights into briefly i mean um okay i'll uh, i'll emphasize on the word briefly and i'll try to keep it brief uh, yes <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right yeah. because because when you talk about foreign intelligence cooperation it yes. has always been a kind of uh, tricky subject and it is uh, again this is again a topic that we can talk on for a very long time but i'll just tell you this with regard with regard to india's intelligence cooperation with the us at least uh, india has always had this desire to have very strong relationships with relationship with the us intelligence when i say india not the political leadership but the indian intelligence community yes. right from the start the first the, the first director of indian intelligence bureau he was really really disappointed uh, after his visit to uh, the us because he wanted to build close cooperation with the fbi and he wanted to be in the good books of the then fbi director mr j edgar hoover but that did not happen um because edgar hoover saw him as um, as india as sort of not so important and and so uh, he was sh- he was shown the door after uh, a brief interaction so from then on india has tried really hard to to indian intelligence agencies have tried really hard to build relationships with the with 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 western countries but there have been serious limitations for the very same reasons that i had been discussing with you all this while the policy priorities have been completely completely different the west the western yes. nations countries have seen india purely from a geographical point of view in which india hasn't figured so importantly and now if you yes. want i'll give you one example which clearly shows this okay one or two examples in yes. the 1960s what had happened was after the war with china right india and the us became so close that one couldn't really say if they were allies or not okay though mm-hmm. india uh, really uh, did not appreciate the word alliance but they were somewhat allies of the united states at least in the realm of intelligence so uh, many of intelligence uh, indian intelligence agencies that came up at that point in time were either british created with the help of the british or americans and the united states had helped set up certain signals intelligence facility to monitor the chinese now at that point in time what happened yes. was the years later we realized that 
the the data that was gathered on the chinese order of battle was shared with india right with the okay. americans had given the technology they shared it with india quite natural but the americans went a step ahead and monitored the indian order battle around that place and shared the data with pakistan okay okay and the pakistanis okay. obviously handed over that piece of data to the chinese oh my god right so so such, so, so then eventually indira gandhi had to you know order the ssb to get rid of that piece of equipment and similarly if you fast forward to uh, the 1980s during the 1980s you had rajiv gandhi who was who as a matter of principle was arguing for a, for nuclear disarmament right but but yeah. what is happening in the united states you had people who are talking about nuclear disarmament not not at least not nuclear disarmament but nuclear non proliferation but it was yes. not it was just a policy for them it is not a principle because for them principle yes. was to was to make sure that they that the soviet union is is targeted and they don't have access to the warm waters in in the indian ocean region right so what do they do all the intelligence that india had been sharing with them with regard to uh, uh, the pakistani nuclear program which which any case india did not have to because the americans themselves knew what was happening but all the intelligence that india was sharing was conveniently handed over to the pakistanis Yes. And this and this continued even uh, during the 90s when when terrorism became a problem. The 1993 Bombay blast is a classic example, where the RNDW's yes. counterterrorism chief uh, went went to Bombay immediately after the blast. He collected whatever relics were remaining, and uh, the forensic analysis then showed that they were made in United States, Austria, and uh, China. It was only Austria yes. that gave it in writing that they had sold the equipment to Pakistan. whereas the united states um, uh, came up with a flimsy argument telling that there was there was there was a theft in the pakistani arsenal so it is not the pakistani military that is responsible for it and they also yeah, went to the extent yeah. of not returning to india the uh, the relics by saying that there was some sort of uh, malfunctioning uh, in their labs and uh, so it is destroyed so the kind of uh, yes. and and we i can give you numerous examples even after 2008 and so on so the india us relationship that way has been um, and that, and that's one of the reasons why when you talk to today's indian intelligence officers right even today there is that desire to build relationship with american intelligence because they realize that that is the only country that can significantly equip us to take on the chinese but at the same time the trust quotient is significantly low because of 75 years of being at the receiving end of uh, you know the the, the american um, what's the right word navery so yes yeah so th th this has been india's experience but but as far as um, foreign intelligence cooperation with other agencies also go there have been results at some points but there have been serious limitations as well because the idea of foreign intelligence cooperation itself works on this broad you know uh, adherence to national interests and so on so you might find yes. instances where we have had significant successes in our cooperation with the israelis or the, with the, with the afghan intelligence and so on but they also come with their own limitations as well when it was uh, deemed by those uh, agencies that it is not in their best interest to cooperate with the indians so yes. for us my argument has always been that develop as much indigenous capabilities as possible because there yes. are limits serious limits to international intelligence cooperation yes definitely i agree with you on this fact uh, especially considering uh, the things that uh, i mean the trust and all these things uh, which come in and the indigenous uh, uh, things i would say it again points out to the fact that i was mentioning that you know we really need our domestic capabilities uh, to be you know strengthening and i believe uh, india really i mean we currently have the youngest population uh, in the world Uh, which is highly equipped i believe 
uh, and it has been growing and we really need to as i i mean even vikram sud has said it a lot of times uh, during the several interviews that we really need, really need to leverage this talent uh, you know in terms of like niche sectors uh, because i i have been observing this i have been trying to push to educate the indian audience uh, with the fact that how military satellites its importance you know in a minimal uh, capacity from cost perspective and with high quality can be deployed for indian intelligence and the military as well uh, because there is a certain level of knowledge gap and even during i mean uh, 2611 attacks Uh, there were there was an instance you know even though there was intelligence and everything the navy was unable to take the actions because navy didn't really didn't have any satellites they dependent on terrestrial things and this has been happening because uh, i believe we haven't been focusing so much on developing the uh, domestic capabilities from the talent perspective i'm talking true i agree i agree with you yeah. i completely agree with you yes Uh, so i mean like just to carry on on this perspective of the talent uh, yeah. can you discuss the uh, recruitment and training process for intelligence officers involved in international operations or you know in general like how the i mean the talent and uh, recruitment process happens or you know talent spotting process happens well i actually wanted to make a comment myself after you said this but then i thought i'll wait for you to ask a question if at all you know in yes, the interest yes. of time yeah so <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. so uh, look the thing is that when um, after the uh, after the dismissal of the first indian intelligence chief right tg sanjeevi the next man who came to power his name was bolanath malik he served for he he's been india's longest serving intelligence chief nobody has had a 14 year career like he did he did you know under nehru okay so he came up with this brilliant policy called the earmarking scheme so accordingly what happened was that all these ips officers who get deputed to the respective cadres will be observed for the first two years you know their annual confidential report that gets sent to the minister of home affairs will be uh, noted for their for their performance and if they've been performing really well then they'll be observed for another 3 4 years and they would then be pulled into the indian intelligence bureau right the top few people few officers would be pulled into the indian intelligence bureau on permanent deputation okay, okay. they would have got something like uh, 100 rupees or 200 rupees uh, incentive and they would be they would become part of the ib so as a consequence what what, what happened was this started in the 1950s and towards the end of 19th until 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 the end of 1970s or so you had for the for 20 years you had the best of the ips officers in the country remember they're not just ips officers this is a time you're talking about when india's in, uh, literacy was extremely low and yes. only the top people got in cleared the upsc and when it's not like today you know today some of the best yes. minds don't go to don't uh, you know take the upsc route but india was different very different at that point in time so yes. you have the best of the minds now becoming part of this agency and they're working as a single unit right even mm-hmm. today's uh, today's national security advisor was also a product of uh, the ems okay so that is the kind of uh, people that we, that it was absorbing but later on what happened was when indira gandhi came to power she realized that you know this uh, agency's this organization is getting too powerful uh, it is something yes. that she did not like and also the other ips officers who could not qualify to be part of the ems had their own uh, grudges to you know sort of grind so uh, thanks to their lobbying and all of that she's put an end to the ems so the only uh, experiment in india to make sure that there is uh, a credible pool of 
highly intellectual and highly uh, knowledgeable and smart people come to form an intelligence agency existed for that brief period and then it was put in it it, it was uh, stopped at that point in time then came the rnw the rnw when it came it started an open market uh, recruitment and under uh, mr kao there were really really good people who were uh, who were recruited from all walks of life right depending on on the requirement you had people from the nuclear field from technology from uh, you know area experts everybody you, you name it they were there and uh, but gradually what happened was this open market recruitment also led to uh, some some bit of nepotism right which i think that the media has overplayed it actually because some of the people some of the guys who came through yes. that route have also been excellent uh, officers who have met and ex- uh, who have interacted with extensively but what has happened over the years is that the training that has been given to them is something that they have picked up from foreign agencies all right so yes. uh, and and the second thing is that because people come from deputation and so on and so forth in in the rnw it is very difficult to train them in in being career intelligence officers okay so yes. they come on deputation for some time so they they are there for whatever reasons they take a deputation is best known to them so the incentive to actually become ingrained in to become a career intelligence officers to officer to understand uh, the history of the organization to understand the craft better that that kind of um, institutional level or a top down um, approach is missing in india if at all somebody decides yes. you know an individual decides that he wants to surrender his life for the service of the organization and the country then it does happen but otherwise there's nothing to uh, to enforce that uh, enforce that kind of a behavior right so the training yes. then uh, uh, yeah so uh, as i was saying the analytical training and uh, area desk training happens on the job so there are field officers who uh, field officers and uh, there are also analysts and then there's a cross pollination of them it's only in areas such as say the assessing the pakistani nuclear program that people from that analysts from cutting across different desks came together in order to uh, identify in order to assess this problem because yes because uh, uh, materials are being procured from different uh, regions of the world and so on and so forth but otherwise the organization is highly compartmentalized where different desks have no idea yes. what what the other ones doing and so on so that is there and once counterterrorism started and once the 2008 uh, mumbai attacks happened then the training uh, process took a little bit of a change uh, we, we i mean there was more training given in in, the, in terms of offensive operations and so on but again we don't know to what extent they were put to use and so on so that has been the recruitment and training process where it has been a bit haphazard in the in the recent times taking relying mostly on deputation from one service to another and so on but going forward i don't think this is sustainable and i strongly understand that even the uh, people in new delhi are aware of it but i don't know when they will start to act on it that they have yes. there has been no move made whatsoever to attract talent from uh, from the market right because yes. the only fa- only factor that one can rely on to to attract talent from the market is pure patriotism because government bureaucracies cannot match up the pay that private agencies private institutions offer right yes. so money is yes. going to be out of question it has to be brute patriotism and it is not lacking in india yes yes all right some people yeah. are purely patriotic and in, in india honestly there are even people who are outright lunatics i'll tell you uh, i'm sorry for the use of the term but uh, but as i see many uh, indians willing to volunteer to the war that is happening in israel i find it really uh, crazy that these people can even think like that but that's how uh, emotional some indians are yes, so yes. if if yeah. yeah but if you find uh, so so the point is that with 
that kind of population being in the public domain uh, and if they have to be attracted if they have to be pulled into the indian intelligence agencies then i think our entire thought processes has to change it cannot be that um, the bureaucracy rules the roost so that's 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 not healthy for yes. uh, uh, india's future yes definitely and i think uh, such ideology and such i mean too much emotions into the work you know also sometimes ruptures or possibly turns the table in the future you don't know what can go wrong uh, with yeah. such individuals as well and i believe Absolutely. that neutrality yes. is necessary when it comes to especially the professional job prospects yeah but contrary yeah. Uh, contrarily let me tell you this omkar uh, some of the best operations conducted by in india be not just in not just within the intelligence yes. community even yeah. within the army i'll tell you uh, is that because the institutions are are so risk averse that some of the best operations are conducted by individuals who are willing to take the risk by uh, by challenging the status quo yes i'll give yes. you one example going back even to the 1950s right when collecting information was so difficult from china we had one officer his name was uh, ak varma he had gone significantly deep into china to meet a source and then it was found that the chinese had captured uh, captured the source and they chased him back so it was only in the nick of time that he entered india and he was he was saved by the indian army now what happened okay. after this was the the senior leadership of the indian intelligence bureau wrote a complaint to the then chief that was bn malik asking that this guy needs to be punished now malik was such a strong officer that he chided all these senior officers and he recommended uh, varma's name for a gallantry medal okay right so so such kind of cases are numerous Yes, right yes, uh, yes. that is how you hear a lot of stories about the current nsa also in public domain and so on so it has always yes, been yes. individual based but it has to be institutionalized that is when you will know how to temper uh, you know exactly. uh, those emotions with with the actual necessities of operations yes yes and i think this is very much necessary because you know i mean the generations are changing the times are changing uh, yes and i believe uh, even though we say uh, whatever happens we need to align with the current generation and the Absolutely. future generation yeah. that are coming so i think this as 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 i mentioned previously as well this knowledge transfer is very important hmm. uh, you just cannot you know hamper the nationalism or patriotism but you systematically of course that, that is very necessary that you showcase the love to your country hmm. but uh, when it comes to you know transferring the knowledge with it has to be in a systematic way not Uh, in a certain way that okay i did this because you know i just love my country but there has to be you know certain kind of uh, transferring or systematic organization as well for that mm. uh, as i previously mentioned you know like we have might have one superstar in one certain segment of uh, academic or maybe practitioner segment um, but yeah once that person goes off that uh, position we don't have anyone to look up to right Mm, and that yeah, shouldn't absolutely. be there and yeah. that's where the institutionalism as you mentioned uh, should be coming into the play yeah and and there mm. is no incentive for deputationists to actually look at the uh, organization's history yeah yes. when when you talk to rnaw officers today who come on deputation from other organizations they yes. have no idea what happened and also since you are on this topic we must mention this as well that the archiving system is absolutely ridiculous in india Hey, right? uh, uh, yes. uh, I, I have, uh, I, I mean, I talked to some of the <laughs> intelligence officers from the seventies. Yes, yes. They say that there, there was, there was a um, uh, compilation of the RNW's operations during the nineteen seventy-one war, which was kept as a sealed, uh, in a sealed envelope, and it was handed over from one, uh, one personal uh, staff officer to the chief to the next one, and it continued like that up until the nineteen eighties, and suddenly it has disappeared now. Nobody knows where it is. 
Oh right, your, 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 the grandest operation that you've conducted, you're the most successful operation that could teach you millions of lessons in terms of agent handling, in terms of covert action and, law, and a whole host of things is, is just gone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is where I mean the capability part and the niche uh, level things come into the play where talent management and the organization systematic uh, deployment should be there. Uh, I hope, I hope, I hope really things change, you know, in the future, because this is very important for True. the future generations to grasp hold of these things. And I believe, like, uh, I think we are reaching the end of the podcast now at the moment. Um, so, yeah, uh, looking into the future, what are the key priorities and challenges that uh, RAW and IB are likely to confront in ever-changing landscape of uh, global intelligence? I mean, you can uh, just tell it yeah. in general. You don't have to specifically point to any agencies or so or such. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I had yeah. already touched upon this, where I said that uh, the global uh, geopolitical landscape will always keep changing. But right now, I think that India's uh, growth is on an ascension, and India's priorities uh, are increasingly changing yes. in the sense that uh, historically, its court operations were uh, influence operations were limited to the neighborhood. Now we'll have to look far beyond it. And India cannot have a hands-off approach right now because everything that you see today, we've been talking about the uh, the the India Middle East corridor to Europe, right? So that is one corridor, and then we're talking, we've been talking about Actis and so on. So you cannot afford to have uh, challenges, you know, anywhere in 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 it, uh, in this in in this entire architecture that you're planning, right? So which means that India's intelligence agencies will now need to look at the world in very different ways. They need to have greater sense of activism, which means that their their uh, manpower will have to be um, will will have to be fine tuned to adjust to these new rea new realities. It can't be uh, generalists who are taking calls on certain things. You'll have to um, you'll have to have intelligence bureaucracies built that have manpower who are there as career intelligence officers. That is something that I would that I'll definitely highlight. Uh, so yeah, that is that is in general, and also uh, the technological space is also changing, which is something that you would be able to talk better since you already mentioned about the space uh, sector as well. So I think how do you balance okay. this um, uh, uh, this quest for technology and manpower, right? That is something yes. that the, that the agencies will have to have a discussion on, because one on the one hand the, the nature of the manpower has to change. On the other hand, you will have to uh, you will have to make space for all the modern technologies, which means that your budgeting systems will also have to change, and your tasking priorities will will definitely have to change given the fact that you see yourself as a vishwa guru or you know or 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 a country that seems to that seeks a global footprint yes definitely i, I believe uh, you know uh, this answered very well uh, but i'd still like to take a step uh, and ask this last question to you mm -hmm. uh, it's it's actually, actually not related to of course the, our topic uh, specifically mm -hmm. uh, related to the intelligence uh, operations uh, but as we have a significant amount of audience uh, from the student side, uh, maybe from bachelors, even masters, and there are some of my colleagues who are even doing PhDs and even trying to you know get into the sector as well uh, in the academic side. Uh, so this question is specifically to serve the needs of the students, I would say, and the people who are into the academics. So uh, lastly, what message would you like to share with student researchers and other stakeholders willing to participate and contribute to intelligence research and studies? So the first and foremost uh, uh, thing that I would, I would say to any students or researchers or anybody willing, w wanting to become part of the academic intelligence co uh, community 
is to shed this uh, i can I, i can understand that as an individual you might have this uh, liking or you know desire to consume as much uh, spycraft data as possible and so on but i would want you to get over the sensationalism and understand the business for what it is and to that extent i think um, many practitioner turned scholars like i can i can name one one practitioner his name is uh, mr vapala balachandran who has written a couple of books right where he also he 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 gives significant data about what the indian intelligence operations have looked like but also he tries and manage fuses it with actual knowledge about intelligence studies now what are those questions it could be how intelligence capability uh, collection capabilities could be improved how analytical capabilities could be improved from an observation of historical cases or what is happening in the current times how can we improve intelligence policy makers relationship so significant several questions like these are there which are very important academic questions so for all those people who want to become part of the uh, intelligence studies um, academic community i would really request them to look at the subjects from all from various dimensions like these and yes. that needs to also and, and 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 from the public's point of view i think that there has to be some sort of pressure that comes from the public side on to the governments on to the bureaucracies to shed the kind of secrecy that they have it is not good not healthy whatsoever there has to be some sort of trickle of information so that people students can actually take that data and make good analysis right i'm not saying that there is not sufficient information now i i i wrote an entire book because there is sufficient information which also shows the the kind of laziness that academics have, have had towards uh, intelligence aspects of um, you know security studies and so on so there is sufficient data they need to engage with it but i think that the governments also uh, the, the public needs to add significant uh, sufficient pressure on the governments to think about declassification policies and so on so that there can be greater public participation in um, in this whole business of intelligence because gone are the days when it was a complete secret activity today you have at least at least there's one person in every household who will talk about something known as open source intelligence right you yes. look at you go you go on twitter you will find millions of so called osintologists right like yes. for, for, there there is there was a scholar by name william agrell he said something he said when everything is intelligence nothing is intelligence right so today yeah, today when yes, i see yes. when i see so many people calling themselves osintologists or you know uh, intelligence analysts and so on i fail to understand what actually exactly is the meaning of intelligence analyst being an intelligence analyst or open source intelligence so i yes. think that we should, uh, these are all discussions that need to happen right How, what is what are the right procedures you know uh, for us to uh understand in terms of conducting research to you know in terms of yes. conducting intelligence analysis and so on so all these the questions are highly germane and they are not clearly obvious to the general public per se so there that is where i think that the intelligence studies academic intelligence studies community has a responsibility and every student uh, or even practitioners who are making a transition and coming into the academic intelligence studies realm they have a responsibility towards this that is to inform people that you know there is uh there are various complexities in this and uh, we are here yes. to help you know declutter all of that and help facilitate an informed public dialogue definitely yeah yeah i i hope uh, the students take away this uh, great key points i would say firstly about you know the sensationalization of spy craft that you mentioned you need to normalize it <laughs> yeah of course and, of course, and of course. in a grounded manner you have to consume this information and start analyzing and yeah if I, if i may just add one thing because you mentioned yes. that right look at look at the uh, the uh, the comparison between rndw and mossad right which was even the title of my article which is chosen by yes. the publishers 
this yes, comparison yes. comes because everybody has this fascination with uh, the mossad's offensive operations right which yes. has come through a lot of books and all that we, where they even fail to understand fundamentally what are the differences between the israeli intelligence community and indian intelligence community first of exactly. all you cannot take the rndw to be the uh, israeli uh, equivalent of israeli mossad simply because uh, the, the israeli system as it is it there, the the Ministry of Defense, right, is predominant. So the so the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the Aman, which is that is the premier intelligence agency of Israel, right? Here yes. it is the RNDW, or you could say the NSCS to a certain extent, right? So there are yes, yes. very there are clear distinctions between the two systems. But because we have been feeding upon all these media narratives, we just tend to go with the flow without really understanding the nuances and differences. Yes, yes. No, definitely. This is this is very an important point, actually. Sure. Yes. So then I think, uh, Dheeraj, I believe uh, there were a lot of points in the conversation that popped up and I hope to record some more podcast as well uh, with you uh, in the future. Uh, hopefully by the end of this year or maybe next year or so, we can de definitely record a few more episodes on several such topics, especially the in uh, infiltration one is something that uh, really hit me hard. I believe like we can really create some uh, two three episodes on those such things uh, both from you know the india's perspective and the international uh, setting as well so yeah thank you very much again uh, for your time uh, and i hope the audience enjoys this podcast thank you very much omkar i absolutely agree with all the points that you've raised and uh, i look forward to having a conversation with you again thank you very much for having me yes Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.